Ice, um, let's welcome Bryce. Thanks. I love this crowd. That's great. Well, today, today I'm talking about prayer. And I want to start with a little bit of a confession that... I've given this talk twice before, and I felt like each time I've gotten up and given this talk, I've had maybe what Jerry would say, some incomplete knowledge. And that's not what bothers me. What bothers me is that my performance in this area has just been so woefully awful that I feel like I've get, gotten up here and I've and I've taught on this subject, and I've communicated truths of, of God, and I haven't even gone out there and applied them myself. In effect, I feel like I've been a hypocrite as I've taught this before. I've been a hearer of the word, but not a doer. And so when Trevor asked me to give this talk, you know, whenever Trevor calls you, you're kind of like, you know, in a, you, get, you have some apprehension a little bit when you pick up that phone. But uh, when he said, I had a much different idea of what I wanted to talk about, but he said, prayer. I'm like, really? And, um, and my apprehension was because I felt like I had been a hypocrite. So I said, yes, I would talk about it again, but I covenanted with myself two things. One, that I was going to apply the things that I was learning. And number two, I was going to think about the reason why I felt so comfortable being a hypocrite. The reason why I felt so comfortable learning all these truths, but not applying them in my life. And, you know, kind of as I pondered that and I listened to some talks, it dawned on me that, that really, myself included, but all of us, we, we don't do what we know we ought to do probably for three reasons or one of these three reasons. One, we can't do it. And so let's say I asked my, I don't have a six-month-old anymore, but let's say when my kids were six months, I asked them to make their bed after they wake up in the morning. Well, that six-month-old literally does not have the capacity to make their bed. So I don't think that reason applies with this subject of prayer. It certainly doesn't apply for me, and I don't think it applies for you guys, that we do have the capacity to pray. Second reason, I don't know how to pray, or I don't know how to do what's being asked of me. And that's maybe my two-year-old, and I do have a two-year-old, that I ask him to make his bed. Well, it's not going to quite look the way I want it to look. So maybe he, he has the ability to do it, but he doesn't quite know how to do it, and I need to teach him how to do it. And maybe that's you guys. Or maybe it's the third reason. Maybe it's because... We don't want to. We don't think we need to. And that's really my five-year-old son, that he has the capacity to make his bed. I've taught him how to make his bed, but he just doesn't want to. And so I ask yourself, with, or I ask you guys, like I asked myself, that for me, I think it was an issue of number three, that I didn't want to. I didn't feel like I needed to. And so I didn't. And... To me, that's an issue of motivation. And so with my five-year-old, I have to motivate him 
to make his bed. And I have to motivate myself in regards to prayer. And I think it's an area that's already been spoken of a little bit, but it's an area of great deception in our church that we're not motivated to pray. We're not motivated to do a lot of things in the Christian life because we're deceived. And I've been deceived. I've been deceived into thinking that the quality of my life this side of the grave is much more important than the quality of my life that side of the grave. And we haven't read this verse yet, but we've read other verses that talk about that judgment seat that's approaching. That that day is going to determine every day thereafter for us. That grave that we receive from Christ is going to determine what our heaven looks like. But this day, today, in what we do or don't do, is going to determine that day. Micah, where'd Micah go? Oh, will you uh, read for me 1 Corinthians 3.10 through 15? According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. That he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So these verses are, are talking about two different types of people, but they have one thing in common, that they both have the same foundation, right? And that foundation is Christ. They're both going to enter into eternity and spend an eternity in hell. But what's the difference between these two sets of people? It's their works, right? And it's the result of what's going to happen when they go through that fire, that judgment day, the backside of that, what is going to happen afterwards, that the one person, his works are going to be burnt up and he's going to have loss. And the other person, his works are not going to be burned up and he's going to have reward. And so the fullness of their eternity is going to be different individually. Not that they're in competition with one another, but one man's eternity, one man's heaven is going to be more full than the other man's. I think I've been deceived into thinking that it's all about having a fullness of this life rather than a fullness of joy in the next life. And remember, this life, very short or very long? Very short, right? The next life, very long. These works that he talked about in this verse, Paul talked about, I think one of those works is prayer. And what I want to try and communicate is that prayer is not a chore for us, but it's a command for our good. And all the commands really are for our good that God gives us. In 1 Thessalonians five sixteen through 18, uh, we're told that to rejoice always, 
Pray without ceasing and in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Again in Matthew 7, 7, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open. Many times, multiple times, it's commanded of us to pray. And I don't know about you men, but um, sometimes there aren't a lot of great examples around us of how we should live the biblical life. There are a few. Um, And when you find those, you want to lock on and you want to hold on to those like a bulldog. To me, there aren't a lot of great examples around me of what a godly biblical prayer life should look like. So I think it's helpful. Um, Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with the wise will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. So you look for the people who are wise, and you try to emulate them. And so I want to do the same in regards to prayer. And I'll give you just a few examples of wise men who prayed, and it seems to me that they were godly men of prayer. Jesus, he spent extended periods of time in prayer, all nights at time maybe even longer during the 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. But there was no indication to me that I find that he woke up, set his alarm for 6 a.m. every morning and prayed for a half hour and then took a shower, got dressed, went about his day. There was nothing that um, ritualistic about it. Daniel, he prayed three times a day. The psalmists were told that seven times a day he praised God. How about some of the earlier Christian or some of the later than that Christians? John Wesley, he spent two hours daily in prayer. Martin Luther said this. He said, if I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. I have so much business. I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. George Whitfield said this whole days and weeks have I spent prostrate on the ground in silent or vocal prayer. Is your prayer life what it ought to be? Again, I'd make the argument, it's not because you're incapable of your prayer life being what it ought to be. And it's probably not even because you don't know how to pray, but it's probably because, like me, you might not want to pray. You don't think you need to pray, and so you don't. And so that's what I hope to work on a little bit, that that issue um, in this talk. And the way I'm going to go about it is I'm going to try and look at prayer um, and investigate it a little bit, ask questions of it. And the questions I've kind of put in the little booklet that I'm going to ask is what, why, where and when, how and what for, and who of prayer. So with that, let me pray. Father, uh, I'm reminded in that uh, comment that Trevor made that uh, I also am not that smart and not that eloquent. And 1 Corinthians reminds that uh, chapter 2 of all of us. And Lord, we desperately want, no, we desperately need your voice to be heard today. We need it to penetrate into our soul. And we need to be men who are changed from what we are today 
into something that looks at all closer to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And so to that end, I beg that you would use this time, that you would mold and you would shape us. You would teach us a little bit about prayer. But more than that, you would teach us about you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is prayer? You know, there, there's probably five to ten different Greek words that are used for prayer in the New Testament. Some of them to beg, to wish, to make petition, supplication. As I thought about the definition of prayer for myself, I just kind of put it in layman's terms. Prayer is just having a conversation with God, isn't it? It's, it's you talking to and listening to God, and it's him talking to and listening to you. It's having a conversation with God. And if you remember what, uh, what was spoken in John seventeen three, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent, that this conversation is going on for the purpose of us getting to know that person across the table, for us getting to know Jesus. And I like to think about prayer not as this regimented, time that I have to have for a half hour every morning or 15 minutes every morning or throughout my day, but it's this conversation that I'm having with God. And maybe it's even like sitting across the table and having coffee with him, or it's like date night and you're just so jacked up because you get quietness. The kids, the ankle biters aren't nibbling at you, you know, screaming as you're, as you're trying to have a conversation with your bride, but you get one-on-one time with the creator of the universe. And that, to me, is what prayer is. And I think it has, based on this, it has five purposes. And I call it the five no's. And I'm kind of quirky. Again, um, I have to use little ways for me to remember some of these things. So you're going to see some of this quirkiness of how I think. But I think the purpose of prayer is five no's. So to know and obey God's word. To know God. To know yourself. To not know the world. And to help others know those first four. So, to know and obey God's word. To know God. To know yourself. And I don't mean it in a weird way, like our culture thinks about knowing yourself. To not know the world, and then to help others know one through four. So that's what I think prayer is. Now let me talk about what I think prayer is not. Prayer is a means to an end. And that's the point that I want to make about this five knows that it's a means to the end of knowing God that again, it's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is as soon as you make it an end in in and of itself, you fall into idolatry. And to get that point across, Micah, will you read for me? Exodus uh, 20, we're going to move to Exodus 20. And let me just give you a background on these verses that Micah is going to read. So Exodus 20 is where we find the 10 commandments. The first Um, communication of the Ten Commandments. And this is where God literally gives them from Mount Sinai. So he's standing up on top of Mount Sinai and he's speaking to the nation that's below. And 
verses 1 through 18 are where God gives the Ten Commandments. 19 through 21 is kind of like the response of the nation to the commandments. They're sitting there trembling and in, in fear and, uh, and just super scared of God's bellowing voice from, from uh, the heavens. And then we get verses 22 through 26 in chapter 20, and that's what Mike is going to read. Then the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. You shall make an altar of earth for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it of cut stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, so that your nakedness will not be exposed on it. So, the first part of that section makes sense to me, because he's kind of reiterating what he's already spoken out of the Ten Commandments about not having idols. Um, But then, Micah, will you read the last two verses of that again? 25 and 26. If you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it of cut stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, so that your nakedness will not be exposed on it. So he's basically saying, when you make that altar, or if you make that altar, don't chisel the stones. Don't, Don't carve them and sculpt them, and don't make that altar too high. And I think to myself, this is an amazing chapter. What, what the heck do these two verses have to do with it? And as I pondered that, and I have no license to be right here, but what it seems to me that he's saying is that the altar is a means by which you're going to worship God. But as soon as you start sculpting it and making it ornate and making it really tall, like some tower that he talked about back in Genesis uh, 11, then you're going to start worshiping that altar rather than me. And isn't that our tendency? Isn't that our tendency with prayer? Man, I'm a, I'm a prayer warrior. You know, call me up if you have any needs. Don't do that with prayer. Prayer is a means to the end of knowing God, not an end in, in and of itself. And when you make it that, you fall into idolatry. Why should we pray? To me, again, this is a question of two things, of motivation and of purpose. And I've already spoken a little bit about the purpose of prayer, that five knows. But I want to talk about the why from a little bit different of an angle. And you've heard this phrase, and I want to try and speak to it a little bit more. You've heard the phrase of trying to prepare our souls for an eternity with God. And I want to speak to that. Men, we are bipartite individuals. We're made up of two parts. And Genesis 2-7 describes this. And this is where the Lord God took man, he took Adam, and he formed him from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. He was dust, and he was God's breath. We're composed, and Jerry spoke of this, of that mortal body and this immortal soul and that soul for us as a believers is going to spend an eternity with God in heaven 
And we should be super concerned about the quality of that soul when we pass through that fire, because that's going to determine the quality of our time spent in eternity with God. In that process, loosely, I guess we call the process of sanctification, the process of our soul being remodeled into the image of Christ, that we might be prepared to spend an eternity with God in heaven. And as I've thought about that process, let me try and give you a description of what I think it looks like. And first we're going to read Ephesians two nineteen through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Michael, will you read verse 21 again? In whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So there are two things that this verse describes that are being built. One is this temple of God. And maybe loosely I might call that the new Jerusalem. But this is being built by God. And then verse 22, Micah. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. The individual pieces of that are also being built. And they're being assembled into the greater building project. And that's kind of what I want to um, what I want to focus down into. Because that is something. That is a stone that should be chiseled. And that is a stone that should be shaped, shaped. And it should be shaped into the image of Christ. And so again, how well is that occurring in each one of our lives? And... Really, I want to make two points about that process of sanctification that's spoken of in Ephesians 2. It seems to me that the further along we get in that process of that peace being shaped, of being molded, the better our heaven is going to be. I think that's what that uh, verse that, I, that Micah read in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 is stating. But then second, I want to make the point. And uh, maybe equally as important, that prayer is our greatest work in that process of that peace being molded and shaped and sculpted into the image of Christ. And to get that point across, that little, that little diagram in your, uh, in your packet is my understanding of the tools that are brought to bear on our soul. And we've spoken of some of those tools already. And these are tools that are brought to bear on this stone that's being shaped and sculpted. And we've talked about the one of people, right? We've talked earlier today about people and how as we disciple them and they disciple us, we are being transformed. Um, we've talked, Jerry talked uh, earlier today about that process. I don't think he used this term, but the process of no be do, but about thinking. And really that's Romans 12 too. be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We haven't talked at all about the process of, of pain that um, God brings events and circumstances into our life that hurt and they mold and they shape us or the process of that. These aren't just one time processes, but these are things happening over a lifetime and we're being molded and shaped. 
What I want to talk first about is that process of preeminence of Christ. That Christ is in charge of this process. That uh, Philippians 1.6, Paul says, Being confident of this one thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That this process is dependent on God. And so prayer is our greatest tool to ask God to work this process in our life. Prepare me for an eternity with you. So that's the first point I want to make. And, and really that comes a little bit out of Psalm 127.1. I'm not wholly convinced that this is talking about our soul. But partially that he says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And so God's the one in the end equation that is the builder. And we get to take part in that process. So prayer is our greatest work in this process. But I also want to communicate that prayer is our greatest work in each one of these individual processes also, right? Isn't prayer what we need to be doing that we talked about? What's that 10, 10 most wanted list that we're praying for guys? And as we pray for them or we're praying for troubles or difficulties in their life, we start to learn what love looks like, what biblical love looks like. Or when we're praying through how to process our circumstances and our problems in life, prayer plays a role, whether it's in persevering in our circumstances, whether it's interacting with people, whether it's processing pain properly and rejoicing the way that we should, or whether it's asking God to open up the scriptures to us and teach us how to obey him. And so prayer is integral in every aspect of that process of the sanctification of our soul. Um, Emmy Andros wrote, there's no other activity in life so important as that of prayer. Every other activity depends upon prayer for its best efficiency. So again, as you think about your prayer life, is it, is it what it ought to be? Is it what God wants it to be? Is it a tool that you're using in the process of your soul being built and being molded in shape that it might be put into that overall building that God is creating to spend an eternity with him? I don't know. Sometimes when I, when I try and explain this, it seems like it might fall on deaf ears and maybe I'm just explaining it wrong. I'm not a good communicator, but this is really the crux of what I want you to remember as to why to pray, why to pray three things. God desires our best. God wants us to be sanctified and to be complete. The second one. Only God can give it to us. Only God can do it for us. In number three, he will do it if we want it to. God wants our best for us. Only he can give it. And he will give it to us if we want it to. 
How about where and when should we pray? I'm going to buzz through these. I'm going to give you guys a card at the end of this talk that has all the verses listed out for you. I didn't think that it would uh, be wise to go through them. But where and when should we pray? I make up the little phrase AM, PM, SOS. And it kind of is like in the morning and in the evening and, you know, when you're crying out to God for help. But the A stands for always. And these aren't all commands, and the second one I think is more an encouragement rather than a command, but mealtime. We're supposed to pray privately, right? Get into your closet and pray. First Timothy talks about praying with a multitude of believers. So a multitude is the second M. We're supposed to pray when we're suffering. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. I think Trevor started out with this verse, this whole conference, that we're supposed to pray when we're overwhelmed, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. And then S, we're supposed to pray for the sick. So AM, PM, SOS. Luke 18, 7 through 8, it says, Shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out to him day and night, though he bears long with him? I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. That kind of summarizes that idea of AM, PM, SOS. How about the next one? How and what for should we pray? This is really an issue of that, that second reason, maybe why we don't pray, because we don't know how to pray. And I'm not going to sit up here and try and tell you how to pray. I think that it's kind of like on-the-job training. John Laidlaw, he says, the main lesson about prayer is just this, do it, do it, do it. You want to be taught to pray? My answer is pray and never faint, and then you shall never fail. E.M. Bound says, prayer is not learned in a classroom, but it's learned in the closet. Let me just try and give you some, some tips, maybe, if you don't know where to start. One, I think you have to be motivated to pray. And that's, again, knowing the why of prayer, that God wants your best, only God can give it, and he will give it if you want it to. I think the second one, um, it's kind of funny. I feel like in, in, a, uh, in a real sense, part of my problem with application is, not, is, is that maybe I'm not a man of, of conviction. And so I've been thinking a lot on convictions. And it seemed to me that Ecclesiastes 12.11 is a verse about convictions. And it says this. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. Convictions that are developed on truth, they do two things. They prod you forward. That's what a goad does, right? And they also act like a nail. They keep you secure that when the tendency is to be swayed and be driven off course, it keeps you secure where you need to be. And... I think you need that in regards to prayer. And for me, as I've thought through prayer, my conviction is that prayer is my first and greatest work. 
And maybe we don't think about prayer as a work, but to me, prayer is my first and greatest work. I think based on convictions, we need to develop habits. And I love what's been said before, not this conference, but I've heard this uh, a few times before, and I love this little cadence. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a life. Sow a life, reap an eternity. And as I've thought about that, it's amazed me as I've looked at some men's life and I'm like, they have accomplished so much for God. And it isn't because they've had this enormous amplitude with no duration. They've developed habit, habits and convictions and they've done a great deal, a big amplitude, but they've done it over a long period of time. And that's what I want to emulate in my life with prayer. That I want to do it, and I want to do it over a long period of time. And if I develop it into a habit, it's going to help in that process. Some things, if you don't know how to start trying to make a habit, there are some resources in the back. One of them I highly recommend. I didn't bring it up here. I think it's the purple book. And it's called Making Time for Prayer. I think it used to be called How to Spend a Day in Prayer. Maybe the title was changed, but... I've gone through that a few times, and I really, really like it. Another, and I'll put back there, I don't think it's back there right now, but I'll put these back there, but the acts of prayer. If you don't have like a template for prayer and you want a template, well, how do I pray? I mean, the, the Lord's Prayer is great, but there's also um, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And you've probably heard that before in, in the Christian realm, but the acts of prayer and going through those in your prayer time. I think that's a great resource also. And I'll put some things back there for you. One thing that I've done throughout the day, and if this doesn't help you, toss it. But I don't know about you guys, but it seems like sometimes when I'm up early in the morning, I feel like I can conquer the world, that nothing can go wrong. But then as soon as my, if it is what I call a quiet time, where that time is done and I start going out into the world, I feel like I'm much more, the world is much more a part of me than I'm impacting the world for Christ. And so, as I've thought about Daniel praying three times a day, it seems to me that, and maybe to you, that I have to remind myself throughout the day of the things that are important that I'm striving after. I have to be continually, like Chris talked about, looking up, in reminding myself of essentially being an ambassador of Christ. And for me, I pray through these six R's a few times per day. And one is run. So I think about my, how am I running the race that God gave me today? I review. So how often do you do that? Do you review your day or your morning and say, how am I doing in that? Am I... Am I performing the way I ought to? Number three, that usually leads to repentance. That I'm not doing it so well and I need to change. Sometimes it leads to rejoicing. Lord, thank you for that opportunity you gave me to speak to someone. 
Sometimes I have to renew. I have to refresh my mind, remind myself of what everything is about. And then request. So beg God, God, I'm trying, but I'm not performing the way I should. Help me. Help me run. And it's back around to the running. So those six R's, a reminder throughout the day. Run, review, repent, rejoice, renew, request. The Bible talks a little bit about the type of prayer or what our prayers uh, or what what we should pray for. Excuse me. It seems to me that we can ask for anything and everything. And he says to do it with bold chops. Again, kind of dumb, but boldness, confidence, humbly, obediently, not my will, but your will be done. Persistently and seriously. And again, these verses you'll have on the card. So let me pause there for a sec and see if there's any questions on any of this so far. Um, And then I'm going to move a little bit in a different direction. Yeah. Hello. Bryce, uh, it seems like my prayer life has been um, so up and down and inconsistent during different seasons. And the one thing that's been very helpful for me is understanding the, the prayer of um, preparing your mind for the daily action. You know, the prayers of Daniel and Joseph's. And yeah. Those seem to been kind of changed the course of my prayer life. And I don't know if it's, I kind of miss the whole acts element to what I've been doing. I've been getting really consumed in preparing not to stumble. Uh, Say that one more time. I I found myself being distracted in my prayer life. I really found myself praying for not to stumble. And I get so consumed with that, of the preparation of the mind to not sin, to not lose those daily battles, to not miss those opportunities. And I'm really stumbling and and trying to just get back on track. Yeah. I don't know about you, but um, I think one of the reason God says it's not good for man to be alone is that it's not good for man to be bored. And so the more I think about, um, okay, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do this. The more I actually do it. Um, And if I consume myself with actually doing the positive works of God, not that I don't, take my mind off not doing the negative, but if I consume myself with doing the things I ought to be doing, usually I find I don't have time to turn the TV on and get messed up with that other stuff. Yeah. Any other questions? So the who of prayer and in order to define that, turn with me to Luke 18. You guys, probably most of you are familiar with this chapter. To me, it's a chapter on prayer. 
And it's specifically a chapter on answered prayer. And let me give you a quick overview of the chapter, um, especially if you haven't read it for a while. Verses 1 through 8 are the parable of the widow and the judge. And that's where God says we ought to pray like the widow and we ought to cry out to the judge to seek, um, to seek justice. Verses 9 through 14 have to do with the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. When they both come to the temple to pray. And we're going to talk a little bit more about each one of these. Verses 15 through 17 are where the disciples say, don't, you know, they try and prevent the infants from coming to Jesus. And Jesus says, let them come to me. So that's about infants. Verses 18 through 30 have to do with the rich man and the disciples. The rich man is unable to leave all and follow Jesus. And the disciples say, well, we have left all and followed you. And then lastly, verses 31 through 43 have to do with blind men. The disciples are blind to what Jesus is saying. And then there's literally a blind man who cries out to Jesus for his sight. So an overview of the chapter. You know, we have a widow. We have a rich man and a religious man. We have infants. We have another set of a rich man and religious men. And then at the end, we have a blind man. So a widow, infant, blind men, and then two sets of rich and religious men. And what I want to do as we go through this chapter is I want to ask four main questions and try and answer those. The first question is, if prayer is a conversation with God, or in essence, prayer is, is having this, uh, is approaching God, who in this chapter is approaching God? And again, I know that you probably haven't read this recently, but uh, as we go through this chapter, who's coming near, either described in the parable or who's coming near literally to Jesus? And it struck me as I thought about that question that everybody's approaching God. Like basically everybody's coming near, even the rich man who is unwilling to leave all and follow Jesus. He's still interacting with him. And it seems to me that's how the world is. You know, I, I, I speak to people in, uh, in our practice about Christ and time and again, I know they're not believers Um, that they don't have a personal relationship with Christ, but they always write it off. Oh yeah, I pray. I talk to God. And so it seems to me that, that everybody thinks that they're in this relationship with God because they talk to him. And that's not really the right question, right? The right question is who does God interact with? Who does God move on behalf of? Who does God bless as we go through this chapter? And that's what we want to answer. So, Micah, will you read uh, Luke 18.1? So this is the parable of the widow and the judge. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. And then will you go down to verses 6 through 8? And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? 
I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So in this parable, we're being exhorted to pray like the widow. We're being exhorted to pray persistently as a demonstration of our faith. So God blesses those who demonstrate faith like the widow by praying persistently. I'd also say if we jump all the way down to the bottom of the chapter, and we're not going to read these verses, but if you look at the blind man, he does the same thing. You know, he, he's, he's kind of inquisitive. What's going on? You know, what's all the commotion? And the people are like, Jesus is coming. He's like, and he starts crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they're like, shut up, shut up, you know, be quiet. And he cries out even louder. And do we do that? Do we cry out like that? in faith to God persistently for him to bless us. So the first thing, God moves on behalf of those who cry out persistently to him in faith via prayer. Now let's look at the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Will you read verse 9, Micah? And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And then go all the way to 12, sorry. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. I counted the number of eyes in that verse, and there were five in the two verses of 11 and 12. In my version, it was kind of interesting. It said the tax collector, um, or excuse me, the Pharisee, he prayed with himself. thought about that how how often do i pray with myself rather than praying with god can you read 13 and 14 now micah but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast saying god be merciful to me the sinner i tell you this man went to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So again, this parable makes the point that God blesses the prayers of the humble. Those that humbly approach God in pray. And I think the example of the infants is making that same point. And um, I'm going to read out of Matthew a similar passion passage that has to do with with infants approaching Jesus, just to make that point. Micah, will you read Matthew 18, 1 through 4? At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before, him, before them, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted... And become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles, humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Perfect. So if we approach God like infants, humble and broken, he answers those type of prayers. And so he answers persistent prayers crying out in faith. And he answers the prayers of the broken and the humble. And so my third question is, which are you one of those people? 
Are you one of those that cries out to God persistently in faith? Are you one of those that cries out to God broken and humble? And the fourth question, if you're not, if you feel like you're not one of those that God's listening to, well, what do you do about it? And I don't think that question is necessarily what you do about it, but it's what you understand about the link between four things that are being discussed in this chapter. The first is prayer. The second is faith. The third is humility. And the fourth is God's blessing. And I want to connect the dots maybe between those four things super briefly. First, the link between prayer and faith. Michael, will you read Luke 18, 7 through 8? We read this one already. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So here you see that God links faith and prayer. That he says that prayer is an expression of faith. How about faith and humility? We're going to go through four or five verses really quick. It's out of Luke 17. Luke 17, 5 first. And this is both about great faith and what that looks like. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And then seven. So they're asking of God or of Jesus, give us more faith. And I think he, he answers that prayer and he tells them how to have more faith. But first he says, well, that's not necessarily what you need because you just need a tiny bit of faith. And he says that in verse six. Will you read that one, Micah? And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So, a mustard seed, super small. You don't need a lot of faith, but it depends on what your faith is in. And I think you guys have heard that spoken of before, but it is the, it's where we put our faith that matters mostly not the quantity of our faith. And the example has been used that if you run, if you're just super timid and you just kind of like barely step out onto a lake in the middle of Minnesota in winter and the ice is 10 feet thick, it's going to hold you. But if you have great faith and you're running really hard and you take a huge leap off the shore and it's the middle of summer and there's just a sliver of ice, you're going to break right through. So what it depends on is the thickness of the ice rather than necessarily your great or little faith. It depends on us putting our faith in God rather than ourselves. But now read, he's, I think he answers that, that, uh, that question of increase our faith in verse 10. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say we are unworthy slaves, we have done only that which we ought to have done. He says, consider yourself unworthy slaves. And Jerry talked about this, this section in uh, Luke chapter 7. Um, where the centurion comes to Jesus and Jesus uh, says that he has great faith. Will you read that, Micah? Luke 7, 9. I'm sorry, I'm going through a lot of verses. I'm going to stop after after this with uh, going through a litany of verses, two more verses, and then I'll be done with seven, nine. Yeah. Seven, nine. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, 
I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And the reason he hasn't seen such great faith is because of what the guy demonstrated in verse 7. It says, therefore, and this is the centurion speaking, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. So in these verses, to me, he links great faith as an expression of humility. And so I kind of wanted to put all this together, that prayer is an expression of faith. Faith is an expression of humility. And maybe even turning that around, humility drives faith. Faith drives prayer. And prayer drives God's favor. Maybe we aren't seeing God work in our life because we think too much of ourselves. And so it's not necessarily that we have to, I guess the moral of, of, of uh, Luke 18 to me is that you don't just have to say, I don't have the prayer life that I want. So therefore I'm going to set a schedule and I'm going to get accountability and I'm going to do all these things. And I'm going to pray for two or three hours a day, just like these other guys. And I'm going to be great in prayer. Part of the process is going, or part of the problem is that you need to go back to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is that we think too highly of ourselves. We think that with our that we can do it ourselves, don't we? We have we're great in in, our, in, our, in and of ourselves, so we don't need a great God. We don't need to depend on a great God. And so, the who of prayer is who God moves on behalf of. And I think that's the broken and the contrite who turn to God via faith in prayer. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. And this is the last two that we're going to answer. And I thank you for bearing with me. We got about seven minutes left. I was pondering this um, the other day, the differences between Solomon and David. And I don't know if you've ever done that. Um, but who... Who would you rather be? Have you ever compared and contrasted their lives? Both of them, they were richly blessed of God. You probably remember both of them sinned pretty heftily. And I would say probably David, if I had to put my own judgment on it, sinned greater than Solomon. Both were men of prayer. But it seems to me that both of them finished their lives and they received much different grades from God. On their faithfulness throughout life. Michael, will you read uh, 1 Kings 11, 1 through 4? Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. For they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. So do you see the different report card that they got? 
from God at the end of their life. It's interesting to me that they both also, they asked for one thing. And that one thing that they asked for, I think, is what they got. And in part is what determined that report card. So Solomon in 1 Kings 3.9 asked this of God when God offered anything. Therefore, did I give you these, Micah? No, I'll read it. 1 Kings 3.9 says, and this is Solomon speaking, Therefore give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? My sense is that Solomon wanted to know how creation worked. He wanted to know how things worked down here. And God, God gave him that wisdom. And what happened is he ended up loving it in the end and fell into idolatry. Now, David, what he asked for was one thing also. Psalm 27, 4, one thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David asked to know the creator. And God answered that prayer. And David ended up falling in love with that which he knew. So, the who of prayer, the greatest prayer I think that you can ask is, God, give me you. At whatever the cost, I want you. I want you and your perfect will in my life, whatever it costs. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none on earth that I desire besides you. So I'm going to sum it up with this. If you want a great heaven, have great prayers. If you want great prayers, have great faith. If you want great faith, have great humility. If you want great humility, Know our great God greatly. I think I have two minutes. Any questions, comments? Micah. You talked at the beginning about uh, the five no's. Yeah. And you talked about knowing yourself and you made a distinction between... What, what the world would mean by that. Can you just elaborate on that? Yeah, thanks. So, Micah's question speaks a little bit to what I just men- mentioned about um, if you want to have great faith, have great humility. And humility to me is not thinking of you, yourself um, as something that you are not, but thinking of ourselves actually the way we are. And will you read a couple of verses for me? So um, Genesis 6, 5. This is what the Bible says about us as men and us individually, I think. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. 
and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then Jeremiah 17, 9. Blessed is the man who trusts, I'm sorry, uh, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick who can understand it. The world tells us that we're basically good, right? The Bible tells us just the opposite. And again, going back to the earlier talks, what are you going to believe about yourself? So that's what I mean about knowing ourselves, that we are bankrupt and we're corrupt. The first beatitude would argue the same point. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So not only am I so poor spiritually that um, I have zero in my spiritual bank account, but I also have a stack of debts on the desk. So I am in the red in my spiritual bank account. That's how bad it is. And Jesus takes all that away. Would you elaborate a little bit on the posture of prayer? Because for some who don't pray, what do you recommend or as far as posture? Are you saying physical posture? Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't think I have any recommendations there. So I would say hopefully we're more concerned about the spiritual posture. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah. And 1 Timothy 2.8 says... um, I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting holy hands without wrath and doubting. And so I think that's a literal command for us that we're supposed to lift our holy hands when we pray. But what that looks like in your life, I can't really define. To me, uh, prayer anytime, anywhere is good. So the posture is not really uh, important. I've prayed flat on my face, standing, looking up with my head bowed, yeah. uh, with my arms wide open, with my palms up, and then turned down. So prayer is good in any posture. Yeah, thanks. I, f- I think that's it. Thank you, men.